her up. <laughs> hey, once again, it's been a real blessing. And uh, I am not a poet, as you're about to discover. I have written a few poems over the years, and yet this morning I woke up thinking about what I learned yesterday, which I assume, I don't know, it must be from the French, Merced. See? I learned Spanish, mercy, the river of mercy. And I got to thinking about that this morning, and a little line or two came to mind. So I thought I'm going to write them down, because as I told you all the other day in studying the Bible, thoughts are like birds. If you don't cage them, they fly away. Well, it sort of kept running on and on like the river does, but I did cut it off because I almost ran out of paper. But anyway, here you go, for what it's worth. The river of mercy. Beside the river of mercy, we have met this week. Beside the river of mercy, at heaven, we've had a peak. Beside the river of mercy, friends and family, they have met. Beside the river of mercy, rich memories, they won't forget. One day, those who know the Savior... A throne will gather around in the place where a crystal river and sea of glass are found. We'll bow before the Savior who saved us by His grace. With wonder, worship, amazement, we'll look upon His face. Not there because of merit or of goodness on our part, but because of grace abounding flowing from our Savior's heart, who judged our sin at Calvary as He suffered there and died, and opened a river of mercy from where flows a cleansing tide. Unlike the Merced River that rises, falls, and crests, the river of God's mercy flows fully, never less, cleansing all who come to Jesus and enter then the race, running, looking unto Jesus, till the day we see His face. So in the battle heavy, and the race that we do run, we press toward the goal, looking ever toward God's Son, who sits upon a throne of grace, with mercy to impart, a never-lessening mercy, that flows from God's own heart. Now all we have to do is get the boys to put it to music. And <laughs> Anyway, I hope you've had good thoughts about the river of mercy. We've been looking together at the book of Proverbs. You can turn there if you like, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. As a matter of fact, I'm only going to read one verse. It's the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to turn back to the book of 1 Kings. But I'll go ahead and read it. I always like to read it because it's good for it to enter not only through the eye gate, I mean through the ear gate, but also through the eye gate. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The writer to the Proverbs, 
Now, in studying the book of Proverbs, I discovered that there's not universal agreement about when exactly Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. I generally felt myself that he must have written it early in life before he sort of messed up. But interestingly enough, there are some people who thought maybe he wrote it after that, after life's experiences and what he had learned. I don't know. But if I could title this morning's message from the Word of God, I think I would want to call it the man who didn't listen to his own advice. The man who didn't listen to his own advice. So with that in mind, let's turn back to 1 Kings in chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And I'll begin reading at verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred, threescore, and six talents of gold. Now, my Bible's old, kind of like me. In my Bible it said nineteen and a half million dollars. I imagine in today's gold market it'd be exceedingly more. Beside that, he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold when it went to one target. And he had made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pound of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind, and there were stays on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side, and on the other, upon the six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom. In all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. In all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. Verse 23. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor, spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And, and the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. Verse 28, Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Now, you can link that to the book of Proverbs. 
because the book of Proverbs will have much to say about the strange woman. And I've met some strange women in my time. But that's not exactly probably what the book of Proverbs is talking about. Strange in the same sense as Israel was warned about strange gods, foreign gods. King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you, for surely they will turn away your heart after these gods. And Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. A number of years ago when my children were young, I remember having a, a conference that I was to speak at in Hartford, Connecticut. I was to give either three or four messages, I think initially three and maybe one towards the end, a gospel message or whatever it was. And as preachers are wont to do, I was struggling with what to speak on for that upcoming conference. I just didn't have any clear indication on what the Lord would have me to do. At the time, my daughters were learning something in the school that they were attending at the time that came from walk through the Bible. And if ever, and if you ever learned that, I, I kind of wish I had. It's very interesting, you know. You you start out with creation and the fall and the and the flood, and there's hand motions to all the books of the Bible that they were learning. So my daughter Rachel was there, and she was going through these walk through the Bible motions, and she came to the part of the kings of Israel, and she said. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. I said, that's it. I got my messages for the conference coming up. Saul, no heart for God. David, whole heart for God. And Solomon, a divided heart. The danger of a divided heart. Heart, the man who gave us the book of Proverbs under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the man who had prayed to the Lord 
And God answered his request for wisdom. The man that was known as the wisest man in all the earth. And God has given us an example. For if that man who was the wisest man in all the earth at that time, and who had experienced such supreme blessing of God at that time, if he could go astray, then as the New Testament would remind us, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Don't think you're above it. Because just like others have been taken off the path, so to speak, there are things in life that can take us out. The tragedy of a divided heart. What a splendid, magnificent king was Solomon. He was such a magnificent king, it says when the queen of Sheba came to visit, there was no spirit left in her. We'd say it this way, it took her breath away. She'd never seen such magnificence. She'd never seen such splendor. She'd never heard such wisdom come from any human being, such as King Solomon. And you know, the world would have looked at him and saw all the wealth, and saw all the horses, and saw all the women, you know what the world would have said? Winning! That's what the world would have said. Winning! It's not what God said. That's not what God said. Read the divine commentary of what took place. In verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. There's the divine commentary. The man whom the Lord had appeared to twice honored that request in that sense, granted him wisdom and wealth in that sense, and all the rest. And yet now, erecting on, in the hill that is before Jerusalem for Moloch, Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Ahaz, king of Israel, I believe is the first king recorded of whom it says in Scripture caused his children to pass through the fire. While we may not be 100% sure of what that procedure was, we are told that perhaps it was they had a a hollowed-out statue-like image of Molech made of metal. They'd put it into the furnace and heat it until it was red-hot and then place their infants into that molten image, causing their sons and their children to pass through the fire. The abomination of Molech. We say they were pagan, they were heathen, uh, what an abomination. And yet we find in our world people don't follow that abominable practice. They kill them before they're born. And we call them pagans. And we call that an abomination. And God says what that is is an abomination. It's one thing for the Moabites to practice such things. But for a king in Israel, a sitting king in Israel, 
to erect that type of thing in the very city of Jerusalem? You see, how did it happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Look back with me into the book of Deuteronomy. You can keep your place here if you like. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord, looking down through time, had given instruction, knowing that in the future, in His plan, one day they would, there would be a king. And so He gave instructions in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt, not, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And in Solomon's case, strike one, strike two, strike three. He violated all of these precepts and clear commands of the Word of God. How did it happen with Solomon? It started with a disregard for the Word of God. A disregard for the Word of God. To where it didn't seem, apparently, that what God said mattered. He was more consumed with what he was going to do. Seven hundred wives. Three hundred concubines. Gold, silver, and all those horses. And yet, here was a man, the Scripture says, the Lord had appeared to twice. God had appeared to him, made himself known to him, made himself real to him. What business did he have wasting his time and energy and strength? on the trinkets of this world. Not the man to whom the Lord had appeared to. The women, as the Scripture had warned, divided His loyalty. They fogged His wisdom. The horses and the gold diverted His energies and diverted His time. Interestingly enough, they weren't bad things in themselves, not the horses and not the gold. The wives, that's another thing. How did he get off? How do we spend our time? How do we spend our energy? 
Where is our love directed? The Scripture says, Love not the world. I confess to you, I have a difficult time sometimes in my own heart, in my own mind, resolving exactly what that means and how it applies. But you know, the rest of that passage says, Neither the things that are in the world. Where is our love directed? Because there are things that can crowd in. Things that begin to demand our time, our energy, our resources. And they may not be bad things in and of themselves. But they can begin to pull our hearts away. One of the Proverbs we didn't look into is found in chapter 4 and verse 23. It says, guard your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. Guard your heart. You young folks that are here, guard your heart. Be careful who you give your heart to. Because who you give your heart to is who you're going to follow. And if you're going to follow somebody, you better be sure of where they're headed. You better know what direction they're going to take you in. Be careful who you give your heart to. And the New Testament is clear on this, isn't it? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath light with darkness? And so on. Because the Lord knows the difficulty of a divided heart. But even with us who are already married, those of us already married, or maybe we've never married, and maybe we never will, there are things that can turn our heart away, divide our hearts. It ought not to be. Not to do a history lesson on passages that even I've spoken of before, but if you want an interesting study sometime, one of the interesting studies that that I find in Scripture is found in the book of Judges. And one of the ways you could approach it, if you were of a mind to do so, is to go through those different judges and note the characteristics of each of those judges. Whether he was a man who had a left hand, whether he was this, whether he was that, or whether he was the other. Follow and note and table the characteristics of those judges. And then go through and note the different enemies, because they weren't all the same. Note the characteristics of the enemies as found in Scripture, the Moabites or the Ammonites or whoever it was, the Philistines. What are the characteristics of those enemies? And then note the particular way that the enemy was dispatched or dealt with. It's a very rich study. You see, those judges that are listed for us, of which there are seven major judges and a number of minor judges, not minor because of what they did, but minor only that there isn't a lot of information given about them. They were held up as models to the nation of Israel. There were probably more, I'm sure, that aren't listed. But they were role models, as we say today. At least they were intended to be. 
And so there were certain things that qualified them. And often the qualification you'll find that, uh, that the thing that qualified them was particularly suited to deliver them, the, the children of Israel from the bondage of whatever enemy it was that they were held captivity. And so the first enemy that you find in the book of Judges is Cushan Rishathaim. The children of Israel were brought into bondage to Cushan Rishathaim. His name means the blackness of double wickedness. He was the king of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the land of Babylon, or as we know it today, modern-day Iraq, the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. What an irony that God had began a nation with a man named Abram, whom he called out of the land of Mesopotamia. And the, and the book of Acts will tell us, as Stephen records the history, that the God of glory appeared to Abram. And he turned from the idolatry of that land to come out of that land to the land of Canaan. And through that man, the father of that nation would be formed that nation Israel to be delivered out of Egypt and brought into the Canaan land and now come full circle under the bondage of the king of Mesopotamia from where God had originally led Abram out. You see the irony? So God, as he heard the cry of his people, because God is a God of merced. <laughs> God is a God of mercy. He raised them up a deliverer. And the deliverer's name was Othniel. He was the first judge. You can read about it in Judges chapter 1. What qualified Othniel to be the judge to deliver them out from under the bondage of the blackness of double wickedness? Well, it's just this. It's not the first time you find Othniel. You find him back in the book of Numbers as well, around chapter 14 or so. Othniel loved a woman. Her name was Aksa. She was the daughter of Caleb. And at least in Othniel's mind, she must have been some kind of woman. Because Caleb said, Whoever goes up and takes Kirjath serum, to him will I give my daughter Aksa to wife. There were giants up there. But Othniel looked at the giants and the mountain. He looked at that woman. And he said, I want that woman. And he went up there and he fought the giants. And he took the city. And Caleb gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. You say, what's significant about that? The Israelites, as we're going to see, would have a problem with the wrong women. Aksa, a woman held up as a model to the nation, as a woman who desired more of what God had for her. For her father Caleb had given her an inheritance and a portion. But she said, I want more. You've given us the upper springs, now give us the nether. 
And I'll tell you, when those little girls come to Daddy and ask for something, it has a way of getting to your heart. Here was a woman who wanted more. You see, Othniel's love was pointed in the right direction, not to the strange women around, but to a woman who wanted what God wanted. Love for the right woman, love for the right, spurred Othniel on to success, to be a savior to the people of God, and a judge, and a deliverer. It's more than just an irony that when you come to the last major judge, whose name is Samson, that if love for the right was the secret of Othniel's success, it was love for the wrong woman that would prove the destruction of the last judge, Samson. And again in that book you see things come full circle. What will keep us? Turn with me, if you would, to a place we've already been. Joe has taken us there, but it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. It's one of the sayings of the cross. Those last recorded words of our Savior as He gave up His life there on the cross. Filled with significance. Only certain sayings were recorded. Many of them, as John says, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And of all those sayings and the significance of them, we find this in John 19.25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother and His wife's and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. You know, John never calls himself John in this book. He always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's like John couldn't get over the fact that Jesus loved him. The disciple whom he loved. And all the Lord had to say to the disciple whom he loved is behold thy mother. And the disciple who Jesus loved, well, you see, how would you motivate someone in the service of God? What is the best motivator in life for us who are believers? I'll tell you this. All the rules and all the regulations... And all the do's and don'ts of which the Bible has a right good many, ultimately they won't do it. Our hearts need to be captured with the love of God. You see, I have a problem. You may share that problem. You can read about that in the last chapter of the book of John. 
It has to do with the fact that as much as I want to, I know I will never love the Lord as much as I should. But there's one thing I can be absolutely convinced of, and that is His love for me. Peter, if you love me, not if you love the sheep. Sheep sometimes are not very lovely. You ever find that? Some of God's people, I know I'm one of them, are sometimes difficult to get along with. You're not always going to have that kind of intense love for the sheep, maybe, but Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Our love for the Savior, but something perhaps even greater, if we can think of it, His love for us. Because His love for us is not based upon our performance. It's not based upon how good we do, how much we do. His love for us will never be any less. It will never be any more. Because it's based upon what He did for us on Calvary's cross. And the greatest motivating factor in the world for the believer in Christ is to grasp the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ's love for me. As Jude closes that little postcard of his, it's hardly a letter. One of the things he says is, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Not that you can ever be removed from it. Bask in the wonder, in the warmth, the reality of the God who created all of this. And the God who created you and made you is the God who loved you enough to give His Son for you to die on that cross and to take you all the way home one day to be in heaven with Him Keep yourselves in the love of God because the greatest motivating influence in our lives is not always how much I love Him, but to realize how much He loves me. Our Father, we thank You again for the Lord Jesus. Oh, what a challenge it is to our hearts as we see a man, the wisest man on the face of the earth, with such wisdom such profound things, such truth, such insight into life itself in all of its dimensions. And yet, to read those tragic words, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Oh, our Father, we're not above it. We're not beyond it. Were it not for Your grace and the power of the reality of the salvation that's in the Lord Jesus... We couldn't last a day. Help us to not have divided hearts. Help us to judge those things that would draw away, take us away, sap our energy, time, effort, strength, resources. Oh, help us to realize how much it is you love us. Overwhelm us with that love, we pray. And we give you thanks again. Even in the words of Jude, we express it. 
Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We give you thanks in his name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.